Having that perspective allows you to see Earth for what it is. It's one body. We're all in this together. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, your baby Jessica Watkins. Jessica Watkins. Ja- Jamie. Hello, Matt. Yeah, Jamie, before we, before we do our greetings to one another. Oh, yeah. Did you think that that was a good impression of Jessica Watkins? Well, <laughs> I, I thought we've been doing the posh voices yeah, for a while true, now. Yeah, that's true. We need to, need to mix I it up. I thought I'd mix it yeah. up. Absolutely no offence, Jessica. Because, uh, I mean, she's ace. Oh, she definitely doesn't sound like that. I liked this little interview that there was in Nature, uh, Jessica Watkins, who is potentially going to be the first human to walk on Mars. Wouldn't that be exciting? I mean, how insane is that, even thinking about yeah, that? Yeah, so she got a PhD studying landslides on Mars, and now she's a NASA astronaut. She's one of the, the sort of fresh batch of astronauts so she she, she she might be she's only 32 or something daft and she's already achieved about 20 orders of magnitude more than i did with my life i mean come on was she in a band called broad she wasn't in a band. no, no. So. It, it, that's the that's the only downside about reading about asteroids sometimes it can make you feel a little bit inferior yeah, but, but you're right. They weren't. She what, wasn't in a what? band, although she probably was. That's the annoying thing. I bet she was in a band at college, and she was <laughs> yeah. like this ace bang out drummer. Or they chart. They charted. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's just sort of really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. That's 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 the question of the day. Does anyone know? Was Jessica in a band? Well, maybe Jess- Jessica uh, would like to come on the on the interplanetary podcast and and tell her. Oh, her talent, yeah, I'd love right. that. If she does, mm-hmm. I'm I'm really sorry about. The accent well, I just put on. It's just, it's, just a, it's just a joke. She might have found it either hilarious or deeply insulting. Jamie, we have Nicholas Booth on today. Nicholas Booth. On today yes. as a guest. And I'll tell you a little funny story. I was walking in Ilfracum the other day, a tiny little yeah. seaside village, if people don't know it. It's a beauty. And there was a box at the side of the road saying, take any book you want. And in the box was a book called race to mars and guess who it's written oh. by not Nicholas. yeah Booth. it's written by nicholas Booth. So I, so I picked it up and i thought that's very funny because i was talking to nicholas that day about doing this very podcast so i instantly what? sent him a picture and it made him laugh um so yes nicholas booth uh, uh, has been writing about space and mars for a very long time and is a super super cool chap and we've been having lots of fun on twitter etc so this is going to be a great interview oh that is ace. right well we look forward yeah to yeah that. yeah yeah uh before we go any further jamie a little bit of a sad one. Oh god go on so yeah this week john glenn's wife annie glenn has died at the age of 100 from uh, COVID nineteen, it would seem complications. Oh, that from. is sad. Yeah, she was. Oh, rest in yeah. peace. But I tell you what, what a what an inning, what an innings. yeah, getting to a hundred. And she had some. She apparently had like a, a, a overcame a significant speech impediment and was a sort of yeah. very uh, well known advocate for helping others with similar challenges. So an amazing person. And uh, yeah, what what that's very sad, but also. Get to 100 and you've really, really done an amazing job. I wonder if she... she the only problem with, in America is you don't get a letter from the Queen. A what? Yeah, really? you don't get a letter from the Queen. She'd been... Well, maybe we should... That's a point. We should start sending letters. Canadian... Yeah, that's a point. That's a very good... You get a letter from the Interplanetary Podcast. If you are yeah. related to space and you are over 100, I think that's a very good idea. I wonder if... I wonder go. if Canadians get a letter from the Queen when they get to a hundred. I I would imagine they do. Anyway, uh, we'll have to we'll so. have to ask uh, Jake one day. Uh, yeah. The big news story this week, though, Jamie, which was um, mm. which which is quite incredible. The um, Ken Bowersocks has had to take over the former space shuttle commander Ken Bowersocks. That is has had to take over from Douglas de Levero. 
because he just suddenly resigned from his new role as the chief of human exploration. So he's oh, only just got that. Okay. He's only just got that job in that reshuffle a few months ago. It was only eight days away from the return of U.S. human spaceflight. So he's Jeez. resigned at this absolutely crazy time. Yeah, it was all a bit of a whoa. What's happened there? Well, there's only one. T- there's only one person you can go to in these times. Exactly, At- and that's Mr. Berger. Mr. Berger, and I also had a quick little conflab with uh, David Baker. So Eric Berger oh, yeah. in in Ars Technica had had this uh, kind of. He laid it out. Basically, it's a, it, it's Lavero resigned because he's kind of mucked up the procurement process for the lunar landers that we talked about with Jake and Anthony. Yeah. He he essentially thinks that, that the only way to get to to land on the moon by 2024 would be to have an integrated system that you launch on SLS. Whereas all the other ones you kind of have to do a little bit of assembly in space as far as I'm aware. That's right. So he kind of said to Boeing, you, you really need to get your bid sorted out because it's a really strong bid. But but Boeing never made it through the f- initial stage of procurement. They got rejected pretty much immediately. So he's kind of broken the rules, though. You're not really supposed to do that. It doesn't seem like he's broken the rules maliciously and was getting backhanders from Boeing or from some senator who where Boeing is based or whatever. So, yeah. uh, no, but he's broken the rules. So he's he's had to resign and he's gone. God damn, get out of here. David Baker agreed with Eric Berger's assessment there as well. So it's a pretty odd story. Yeah, it's not, it's not good, is it? Especially considering on the 27th of May, this week now, we have the big one. Oh, so, are you gonna are you gonna wake a dragon? Awaken the dragon, awaken the beast. Crew Dragon Demo Two. Yeah, this is the return of U.S. spaceflight, U.S. human spaceflight, which is let's face it, extremely long overdue. I I was thinking about this the other day. Imagine saying to Neil Armstrong when he got back from the moon, or or worse, Buzz Aldrin. Imagine saying to one of those when they got back safely in 1969 and turned around to them and said, do you know what? In the year, well, from the year 2012 to 2020, we won't be able to send people into space. The Americans won't be able to send people into space. And do you know what's worse? We'll be paying the Russians to do it for us. Oh, my God. It's, it, it would just be unthinkable, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's just actually unthinkable. actually unthinkable. I mean, it, it's actually incredible. So this does, I must admit, I, it, it might be hard for us as, as English people to really appreciate <laughs> what this means. Yeah. But the fact, yeah. that, that point that you brought up, uh, the fact that people can't travel down to the Cape and, and actually see what is a monumental launch, really, it's really quite yeah. depressing, isn't it? But it is. uh, yeah, I should be is. watching it online, just However, like everything yeah. else. I'm I'm watching are, my friends online. News. I'm watching my TV. Yeah. Basically, very little I, these days. I don't do through a tiny little hole on a computer screen. It's very annoying. Oh, thank goodness for thank goodness for the internet. Yeah, my guilt. Um, I'm not sure. I wonder wonder what our lives would be like without it. It w- I don't know. It'd be probably very depressing, wouldn't it? Um, yes, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> Doug. Chunky Hurley, as he's called. Oh, Chunky. Oh, Doug Chunky. Chunky. Yes, he's going. He was the pilot on the very last uh, SDS 135 back in 2011. So he he was Uh the last person to fly an American mission. And he's going to be the first to fly when it comes back. So that's pretty cool. Nice little circle complete there. That is cool. Welcome back, Chunky. Yeah, he's, he's donned his um, SpaceX pressure suit, which does actually make him look a little bit chunky, a little bit middle-aged, as previously discussed. Don LeChunky. Uh, Dr. Bob Benken is going to be the yeah. person that joins him. Oh, now, glory. here's a coincidence. He's the veteran of two space shuttle flights as well. Now, here's a coincidence. They are both married to... Other astronauts. So oh. Bob is married to Megan MacArthur, who was the very last person. This is a very cool claim to fame. The last person to touch the Hubble Space Telescope. 
That is pretty that cool. That is really cool, isn't it? So she, yeah, she was on that very last servicing mission and she was the last person to touch it. That That is really cool. Yeah. Whereas Chunky, Commander Chunky, is married to Karen Nyberg, who's one of the super cool NASA, oh. uh, NASA astronauts. And her nephew, Andrew, designed the insignia for the for the launch. Bloody hell, what a family. Yeah, it's that's a bit painful isn't it karen nyberg of course she was on the international space station even though she had a young child with bob who i believe was serving as the sort of chief of the astronaut office or something crazy so they're busy people and they still manage to have a kid and bring it up while one's in space (laughs) easy peasy um yeah. uh yeah so uh, the, of course we've discussed the fact that this mission will have NASA worm on it for the first time since 19 19- Return of the worm you know that it be back uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> if only worm rhymed with back I know. it rhymes Damn with it. something mm. Return of the worm you know it's going to burn great return of the worm it's got a re-entry burn <laughs> Yes. Yeah, there we go. We finally got there. There we go. That's the hit. Uh, there's going to be a nice, fresh booster that's going to land on Of Course I Still Love You in the Atlantic. Excellent. I think we should come up with different ways of saying I, Of Course I Still I still Love You. About Of Course I Still Love You. That's very James Bond. Uh, of Course uh, I Still Love You. oh yes I think it's my favourite impression that you do (laughs) oh yes of course I still love you of course (laughs) hey crew dragon yeah is now the only manned capsule to land at sea which is very odd considering about like three or four years ago it was all about the how it was going to land with its retro rockets on the ground and it was all going to be like super cool no, it's just going to splash down in the sea, and they yeah. and the astronauts are going to have to be recovered. So yeah, that's the first time since the Apollo era, as far as I can, as far as I'm aware, that's the, the, the that sea recovery, getting astronauts out of a capsule before it sinks, is um, first time that's happened since uh, since Gene Cernan splashed down. I think this is the thing. This I think, is the thing. I think um, an exciting one for Britain, though. This this week. Here we go. So, uh, UK-based rocket company Skyrora. Skyrora. Who are the sort of enfant terrible of rocket British rocket country uh, companies? As far as yeah. I can make out, they're the rogues. They actually managed to set up a mobile launch complex, which is. Harder than you think. It's got like these lots and lots of trucks with various command centers and stuff like that in them and fueling mm. things. They set that up in five days in COVID-19 lockdown conditions, no Gee less. <laughs> and they have done a static, a full static fire test with their Skylark L rocket. Now, they're saying that that wow. is the first since, on UK soil, the first since the UK Black Arrow program, which was 50 years ago, of course. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's pretty monumental. Uh, that's and, amazing. Which means that they're now confident they're going to have a Skylark L launch from a British spaceport by as early as next spring. Which, that is class. That, that's very cool. So that's... Uh, the Skylark looks like we're going back to Scotland, Matt. Yeah, we we will have to go see that launch. A Skylark L is only a sort of two and a half ton rocket, and it's only capable of getting just about into space. So it puts a fifty kilogram object to a height of about one hundred and two kilometers. So it just gets into space. Useful for research for universities and research facilities and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's a single. It's a single stage. It's just one single stage suborbital rocket. But the Skyrora XL, they reckon, is going to be ready to fly in twenty twenty three, and that's a proper, you know, launching three hundred and fifteen kilograms or so into low Earth orbit. Jeez, Louise! Yeah, so that is quite um, quite an interesting story. Skyrora's chief executive. Officer, the CEO. Shall I tell you what he said? Vladimir Levkins. What did he say? 
As the launch aspect of the UK's new space industry starts to emerge, there will be many events that have never happened here previously, and this is one of them. This was a mammoth effort in very trying circumstances, so it is quite an achievement to be proud of. Check it out. Beautiful. So yes, Skyroar are definitely a, a company to watch, aren't they? Well, there's a quite I think a... we should try and get uh, one of them on the line, get a nice little interview. So if you're listening, Skyroar, I know you I know you are. Come on. And I'll, 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 I'll email you later on. So you'll probably get the email before you listen to this. A very cool one. Ariane Issa have uh, allowed Kerbal Space Enthusiasts to yeah. be able to build the Ariane 5 rocket and uh, tackle real ESA missions. From, so from nuts. 1st of July, they're, they're, they're going to release Shared Horizons. And so, Whoa. yeah, so if you're a Kerbal fan and you're an ESA fan, 1st of July, you should be in some form of heaven. There we go. Old Henry Philp, who will be very pleased with that one. Very pleased indeed. Henry writes a little Kerbal Space Programme article each month in Spaceflight magazine. Oh, you've got to pick up a copy. Jamie, this is a great one. Here we go. There is a space telescope that has been called W-First for a while. Uh-huh. And uh, W-First is the next kind of generation space telescope. It's, all, it's, it's one of the ones that's, it's that always there's a threat of its budget being removed. So it's, it's, it lives in that kind of really perilous zone that, that it could have its funding cut at any time. But it does yeah. seem to have had the green light and it's getting closer and closer to being a super reality. Now, we go. remember talking about Nancy Grace Roman? Oh, NGR, yeah. NGR on podcast 133. Lovely to go back and I listen do. to that again because uh, Nancy is a total, total legend. She mother, really is. mother of Hubble. The telescope, not the man. She was really super instrumental in making Hubble Space Telescope happen. So this is really, really cool. Uh, they've decided to call this W-first next generation space telescope the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. That's awesome. Yes. So That is awesome. Yeah. And, uh, of course, it's the 100th year of women's suffrage. So as well, we so go. so it's actually NASA have used that moment to to uh, use Nancy to name this space telescope. Which well done, NASA. Uh, and yeah, I didn't realise that it's got exactly the same sized mirror as Hubble, but because oh, the, really? yeah, but because the technology is slightly better, it can take pictures at the same resolution as Hubble. But the field of view is a hundred times larger, so every picture that uh, W first take is is like a hundred pictures that Hubble takes, mm. which means, of course, it can survey the sky a lot quicker and and well, there's going to be hundred times more data. So this is great news for scientists and great news for fans of beautiful pictures of space. That is so exciting. Do you want to hear what former Senator Barbara Mikulski, who also worked on the Hubble Space Telescope and the W First Space Telescope, did you hear what she what she said? Senator Babs. Yeah, go oh, for it. <laughs> former Senator Babs. She said, It is well deserved. It recognizes the incredible achievements of women in science and moves us even closer to no more hidden figures. And no more hidden galaxies. Clever. Clever, huh? Real good. Re Real referencing good. the hidden figures of NASA's women that helped the Apollo mission and, uh, and tying that in with hidden galaxies. How cool is that? Absolutely lovely. Good work, Babs. Good work, Babs. So just a quick rundown of the Roman Space Telescope, as it now is called. Uh -huh. It's got a 2.4 primary mirror 2.4 meter primary mirror that's almost yeah. eight feet in di diameter 
So about the nice. same size as Hubble, or exactly the same size as Hubble. And it's got two instruments, the wide field instrument, which of course is where the W first name came from, the mm. wide field instrument space telescope, um, and uh, uh, which obviously is this Hubble camera that's able to take even wider field than the Hubble could. Uh, but it's also got this sort of next generation coronagraph. And a coronagraph is this thing that blocks out the light of a star so that you can see planets orbiting the star. You know, like sometimes where something's really bright and you put your hand and it kind of blocks that light and you can and, and you can see things in the glare. Oh, right. It's like that. Bloody so it's hell, like a yeah. coronagraph that does that. So it'd be able to see things like a, uh, a kind of Uranus, I've tried to avoid it, Uranus-sized planet Good. orbiting about the distance that Earth is from the sun. It can just about spot and actually view that sized planet. So it's going to be able to get pictures of, well, you know, get data of large planets orbiting stars. So that's going to be, wow. it's going to be actually amazing. Well, I'm W first is going to be very, very cool. So that's so exciting. Yeah, get in. It's getting closer and closer to being a reality. It will probably be up before James Webb. Uh, oh, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> oh, let's oh. not talk about that but the two combined that's the really exciting thing w first and james webb combined will really be something very very special indeed this is it this is it so have you heard about this outer space treaty james? ost the, yeah big time there's, there's a there's a kind of new one called the artemis accords uh-huh which is essentially nasa's um outlining a certain set of values that they want to take to the moon. And it's really kind of based on, um, it's based on the outer space treaty. Um, I did spot that quite a few commentators were saying that really that the, there's something in this that using, using this, you know, it all looks totally agreeable. But in the Outer Space Treaty, there's this slightly contentious part of the Outer Space Treaty that says you can't own anything in space. So you're not allowed to yes, land right. on the moon and stick your flag in and say, this belongs to it's me. It's fine. It's the interplanetary podcast. Yeah, it, it's the interplanetary podcast because we 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 put our name on a little Mars rover. So yeah. it's it you, you can't do that. But the Americans interpret it as well as saying, no, you can't own the place, but you can own the resources that you extract. Now, there's a little bit of ambiguity about that, but mm. this uh, Artemis Accords Agreement perhaps makes that slightly less um, ambiguous, and therefore people agreeing to the Artemis Accords Agreements are kind of pushing, nudging the Outer Space Treaty in, into the realm of, of course, you can go and get resources and they're yours. See what, right. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. And it was amazing how vocal Jim Bridenstine, he was talking to Ars Technica, and he was very vocal um, in relation to this about that last week's Long March 5B crashing down. And this is what he said, and I think this is actually amazing. He goes, the empty core stage of the Long March 5B weighing nearly 20 tons was in an uncontrolled freefall along a path that carried it over Los Angeles and over densely populated areas. I can think of no better example of why we need the Artemis Accords. It's vital for the U.S. to lead and establish norms of behavior against such irresponsible activities. Space exploration should inspire hope and wonder, not fear and danger. That's glory. He's not fair play. He's not messing around there, is he? So that go for it, yeah, Jim. go for it. That's uh, pretty strong stuff, and it's basically saying, look, we're all going to go to the moon. Let's all sign up to this and 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 have trans. It's a it's a good list. So it's on it's on NASA's uh, website, the Artemis Accords. I will stick it into the notes as well. It's quite cool though. That, you know, great. It's, it's all obvious stuff, and it's all related to the Outer Space Treaty. Yeah. But it but it but it's it's quite good to see it written down. Let's hope that everyone sticks to it. What you, what what do you crossed. what do you think of the chances? Oh God, let's not. Ah. 
Oh, very slim. Yes. Uh, there was a, a story on the ESA website that I really liked, really grabs my yeah. attention. I'm kind of in the vibe now that I'm looking at things when people say, oh, it's going to be the end of the world type scenarios. There's going to be an asteroid strike. There's going to be this. There's going to be that. There's going to be a pandemic. Yeah. And you go, yeah, whatever. But now we've had a pandemic <laughs> or in a pandemic, I can kind yeah. of take these things slightly more seriously now. I don't know about you, but yeah. um, I saw one. And the the head the headline was Earth's magnetic field is mysteriously weakening, and I thought, oh no, here we go. Can you imagine if suddenly That's all we need if, if like oh yeah no the the we've we've only got like fifty years before the magnetic Earth's magnetic field just goes and. And that's it. I mean, that really would be game yeah. over. So um, yeah. there are three satellites that are up that uh, ESA put up called Swarm. 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 Uh, Swarm. And yes, they have, we talked about them back on podcast 131. Uh, when we talked about, and remember the, um, remember, <laughs> remember the atmospheric anomaly called Steve. Oh, I do remember that. <laughs> so, yes, Swarm actually cracked what Steve was. Uh, it, and it is very, and, it, you know, it's some kind of, again, some kind of interaction with with electricity and the solar storms with Earth's magnetic field. So, yeah, yeah so um, that actually, Swarm has been, uh, one thing I was, when I was reading up about Swarm that I think is very interesting is that Canada had a satellite that they were using to do a similar sort of thing. And it just yeah. so happened that it, that it that it matched the profile of Swarm's trio of satellites. And so they added this Canadian satellite. And this Canadian satellite has, uh, is now part of a four-satellite uh, constellation of Swarm. And it became Echo. So you've got Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, and Echo uh, flying okay. around. And so the Canadians, yeah, sort of uh, added this fourth satellite to the trio. Which I thought was really interesting that you can kind of it's good that. That, that it's that flexible up there, um, and it's yeah. but but there is this spot that that hangs over South America, and now it's stretching over to Africa where the Earth's magnetic field is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And it's almost like a sort of hole in the magnetic field, and it's known as the South Atlantic anomaly. Uh, and it's really okay. in, uh, uh, and but it's getting weaker, and no one really knows why. And some people have sort of speculated, well, maybe this is this is when the poles are just suddenly going to switch because every now and then hmm. the poles switch, so south becomes north and north becomes south. Um, they a lot of people are saying no, it, it, it's well within what you'd expect. So really, this is it, it's we're not really seeing a disaster here at all. This is, but it's very very interesting, and 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 what it does affect uh, this South Atlantic anomaly is spacecraft that fly over that area because you've got this weakened mm. sort of almost like a hole in the mag, you know, in the magnetosphere solar radiation can or and and you know just general radiation can pour in it's not deflected God by the damn. magnetic field so so yeah the spacecraft flying through that part affected quite badly by this radiation streaming in sounds like a hollywood movie waiting to happen Matt. it does well i that's what that's what i thought i thought that the south atlantic anomaly getting bigger and bigger and 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 the earth's magnetic field dying and then you have to get bruce willis to drill into the core of the earth to set off a nuclear explosion <laughs> is ri literally what we need as the next hollywood blockbuster as far as i'm Choose concerned your protagonist matt who are we taking so bruce willis we've got definitely got brucey bonus tom tom cruise or or Clooney. Clooney's not much of an action one, though. Is Maybe it? Tom Cruise is stationed on the International Space Station, and that's what that's all about. And yeah. and Bruce Willis, uh, and oh, you could you could have all of them. You could have Arnie. You know what was the, what was the name of that that franchise that we had for a bit, which had all of them in. <laughs> Oh God! I, what was the in, that? the Indestructibles yeah, we, or something? What were they called? Oh my God! Yeah, I still haven't seen. No, that. but apparently that no, will. but apparently they're really good. But uh, really, yeah, apparently they are. Let us know. Is that film any good? <laughs> right, Jamie. We 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 rabbited yes. on enough. Would you like to listen to Nicholas Booth? Oh yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> it was so exciting. It made me sneeze. 
a cooter. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. I am joined on the podcast with Nicholas Booth, who um, is a pretty prolific space author. Is um, Can I say that? Uh, welcome you could to- have said that well, 20, 20 years ago before I joined <laughs> Witness Protection, because I've been, I've been do- doing other stuff. I've, I turned to crime. <laughs> well, that's, you've got to do something in these, in these journalistic hinterland. So I believe you've got a, uh, a new book coming out. So let, let's start there. Let's, let's have a, give us a big rundown on this new book that's coming out, because it looks very exciting, and I've had, had the pleasure of having a little bit of a preview. The book is called The Search for Life on Mars, The Greatest Scientific Detective Story of All Time. And it's taken me 20 years to, to work that out with uh, another author, a fabulous author who you should have on the podcast, Elizabeth Howell, who is Canadian and has lots of the energy that I once had. In the time we've finished the book, she's written another one and started another. I've been in the garden and, you know, done a bit of cooking. So that just shows you, you know, I, you said prolific. Well, I'm old. I'm in my 50s. So I, I wrote a few books a few years ago. But... Um, the book basically I started when I was in journalism, I worked in newspapers, and the most exciting night of my career uh, was in 1996 when there were these strange rumours swirling around about you know, NASA had found something in this meteorite, and it's a little bit, it's like something coming out of left field to do with Mars, which I can, can talk about. So I interviewed lots of people, I was in a very good position to be able to to talk to people, and... So from 96 to 99, 2000, that time period, I, I interviewed virtually everybody who was involved with Mars. And that was what I always called the second generation of researchers, the kind of first generation of people who built the first instruments that went to Mars. I'd spoken to most of those. Um, so between between us, we've both, as in Elizabeth and myself, have spoken to people over 30 years. And, you know, being an anally retentive train spotter underneath it all, I kept all my notes. So have you got like a sort of big, like a bunch of shoe boxes, essentially, full of... Yeah, I've full got, of... I kept, you know, I kept notebooks, I kept taped interviews, not that anybody can play cassettes, uh... Anything that I saw that I thought was quite interesting, I kept. And the starting point for the book, oddly enough, was... I'm, I'm not one for signs from, from the gods, but I was at my mum's house looking for something in her attic. And this box of discs literally landed on my head. And I looked and thought, oh, yes, that's all the Mars stuff that I was doing 20 years ago. And that was the same day. So this was in the summer of 2018, when the group of scientists at... JPL at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory had published the first paper to say that the Curiosity rover, the big one with lots of six mm. wheels, had, had discovered for the first time organics on Mars. And that really was, you know, that's really the starting point for, for the book because when there were no organics discovered in 1976, all the scientists involved then said, game over. So 40 years later, uh, here we are, and sorry, yes, forty years later, um, Curiosity finds organics on Mars, which was you know it's it's a bit like a sort of mythical quest really, and that was what <laughs> they found. And the organics are the kind of biochemical backbone for life, and you know it was a pretty significant um, discovery. And I thought as soon as I you know as soon as this wound on my head heals, I'll start working on the book. No, it wasn't that bad. Um, I I literally. <laughs> You know, and I was looking for a younger author in the sense that I've been out of newspapers for over 20 years and I'm not in any sense of the word current. And Elizabeth is very prolific and she'd been to Baikonur and had written about that. And it brought back some happy memories because I'd been to Baikonur, which if anybody's listening to this, if you ever get the chance to go to the Baikonur Cosmodrome, you should. That really is something out of Philip K. Dick. It is in- incredible. Yeah, I, I saw I saw it quite recently on that um, Netflix document. It was just crazy with all the kids playing on the uh, model rockets. It's just like wow. You go there, and I mean, I've not been there since '94, so uh, but it's still the same. You get to wander all over the launch pad when they're getting the rocket ready. Uh, you know, Cape Canaveral. 
you, you're at least a mile away and there's armed guards and marines and you, you don't get anywhere near. Um, the thing that stuck in my memory is the, in the room next to where the cosmonauts suit up, so they stand up, they go through the ceremony and they salute the motherland and do all that, there was a babushka, there was a, you know, an old lady selling drinks, fizzy drinks. And this is absolutely true. So this was 94, state-of-the-art technology in the next room, this babushka is that, using an abacus. <laughs> there you go. Really, really want to go to Baikonur, of course. Oh, you should. Um, I mean, you can do it now because I mean, while you can, because we know SpaceX is going to launch soon. But uh, it, if you can get the excuse to go there, it is extraordinary, and the the sense of history. Um, and one of the big regrets, unfortunately, is one of the things that we we just did not have room for in the book was to look at all the Soviet missions, because that is a is a an untold story. And unfortunately, um, for those of you who know this. Soviet space history of all the missions that didn't quite work and everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Uh, it, it's I, I do think that's one of the last great stories to be told. But what what we've tried to do with the book is to make it as current as as possible. So it comes out at the end of June in the US. Um, now because of the virus that's taken over the world, I'm not sure when the clipper ships will get across the Atlantic to this side, but it will be available about the same time as the the next launches. Um, the NASA Perseverance, there's the Emirates Hope mission, and there's a Chinese mission as well. That it's the launch window because, as I'm sure some of you listeners know, you can't just oh there's Mars will go. You have to wait for the the best opportunity with the, you know the a launch window to open so that you've got the right amount of fuel to get there. And as we know, it's not easy to get to Mars. Some you you should have a pretty good gut feeling. What kind of gut feeling do you have with the the chance of success of China's first stab at landing something on the surface? You know, I I only can tell you what I've read and people we've spoken to. But they what is really interesting about the Chinese program is it only really began in two thousand and sixteen. Now they already landed the um, oh the the, the Changi four Changi. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, as as I get older, I can't. On a good day, if you ask me my name, I can remember that. The Chinese, you know, they've they've got their own sense of manifest destiny of what they want to do, and they're talking about that they may even attempt to bring samples of Mars back before the NASA ESA mission. But that that also is the significant thing about these launches, particularly Perseverance, is the minute it goes. The clock is running, and that's the clock is running to bring back a sample of Mars. And I think that genuinely will be, certainly, um, it's probably the last great space spectacular I'll see in my lifetime, probably by the end of 2020s, early 2031. Um, and that's, you know, is a, it will be a shining moment of exploration. China could do it first, America could do it, you know, it, I'm not a particularly betting man but um you know those samples will be returned um and i do think that because again we've spoken to all the people who are doing you know current mars research and a lot of them say that's the moment when you know we get this stuff back to our own labs and we can do the work in our own labs and we can you know that's when everything goes into overdrive that's the moment in the wizard of oz where it goes from black and white to color rocks from mars make their way over to earth and we and we occasionally get a little you know we're we're able to do experiments on it what what is it about rocks that you could farm you could send a little rover to collect and then get back that would make them this extra special the problem with the the rocks that that land here and the amazing thing is there's something the estimate is about half a ton so half a ton of mars lands on earth every year now it doesn't all come at the same time in one big you know which is lucky because the place where you're most likely to find these things are, is Antarctica. And this really is the sort of the undercurrent of the story of the Martian meteorite in 1996. So the problem is with Martian meteorites, although they're really interesting, they're completely out of context. So you don't know where they've come from, come from. It stands to reason that sometime in the ancient past, something has smashed into the surface of Mars, knocked these bits of rock off that have flown through you know interplanetary space near to us and then they sort of land and then they land in antarctica but the only ones that survive are the kind of hard igneous rocks in other words the volcanic stuff um that we know by looking at mars because you can tell from in the same way you look out 
on a winter's day and you see your other half go out to work and then the postman and then they come back and it's snow you can tell by the you know who's who's come in first sort of thing well it's the same with craters on mars if you look uh, across the northern hemisphere of mars it's mainly volcanic plains and that means that there's not many craters there so in other words it's 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 a younger surface now the chances are that if life ever did get hold on Mars, it would be probably three and a half to four billion years ago. The surfaces, <coughs> excuse me, that we've seen, the volcanic rocks are some, you know, somewhere between two to three billion. So you're not getting the the sample that you need to find the interesting stuff. The rocks that that tend to survive, that land here, that we get, tend to be younger than the interesting biochemistry that might have happened that you want to look for. So that, in a nutshell, is why you go and send a rover, because the rover can look and say, there's a rock, that looks interesting, let's go and have a look at it, do some basic chemistry, poke around with it, scratch it, move it and see what you find, and then that's the sample that you bring back. And you know, slightly more complicated than that, obviously, is, yeah. is, is, the, yeah, is the, the way that this will be done. Now the the um, the NASA Perseverance rover is landing at a bullseye called Jezero, a crater um, on the, these older northern plains. But it looks as though because it's a crater that bedrock has been thrown out, and there's all these what they call ejector blocks, which is all the stuff that's thrown out of a you know crater impact, and that's the older stuff. So the plan is that. Uh, perseverance which is curiosity with improvements uh will trundle around and they will start taking samples of all the interesting stuff but they're not actually going to you know they're going to then wait till 2028 for the next mission to land the, the mars sample return which will be european um and, and then there'll be a rover on that which will probably be built in britain um that will have to Establish the the land speed record on Mars, uh, or you know, two or three times faster. We're not talking about you know Grand Prix. Mm. Um, it needs to be able to go and grab up some of these samples. That so, Perseverance will land. It will take what they call caches, um, and they they sort of you know they're like sort of elongated test tubes, and they'll try and get a variety of these things that they can. Then in the meantime, the scientists can argue over which is the most relevant, and something like twenty or thirty of the most interesting will be packed into a um, ascent vehicle, as it's called, to bring back the sample of Mars. Now, the World Space Agencies have been talking about this for as long as I've been covering space. Uh, I always like to use the example of the villain in Live and Let Die, right, where he says, and par mm. paraphrasing, there's two ways to disarm a crocodile. You can either shoot it or you can stick your hand in and pull its teeth out but one by one. And getting a sample back of Mars is sticking your hand in and taking each tooth out. You can't just be on the surface of Mars, take a sample, there's the Earth, whoomph, fire it back. There are lots and lots of really, really complicated stages that you've got to do, and the clock is running, because of the whole time you need to hit the launch window to come back to Earth. So I think they'll do it, but as we say in the book, you know, don't believe some of the breezy hype. There's a lot of sort of technical problems that need to be solved. Um, one of the reasons why, and I think quite sensibly, Europe has decided to um, delay ExoMars, which is landing at a different site, is because you know landing on Mars is tough. You need to make sure the technology is working and it's up, up to speed. And as we know, they've had a few problems, which by the next launch window they'll hopefully have fixed but you know it's not easy there was a headline that i really quite liked in something like wired that said most mars missions crash burn or die yeah well i mean it's i mean yes yeah, so, i mean even perseverance is going to have to go through that moment of terror just like curiosity did i mean that the uh, so i mean the americans have seem to be nailing it but of course it's it's not it's not over till the the fat lady sings yeah do you have a sort of personal hero that you would bring back from the grave, they have to be dead. <laughs> that you would bring back from the grave and say, "Look at, look at, look at all this! Isn't isn't this amazing?" So you would sort of show them and everything that we've learned about Mars and and space. Who who would you who would you bring back? With Mars, I would love to bring back Jerry Soffen, who was the 
Viking project scientist. He had the wisdom of Solomon because all the biologists bickered. Uh, I mean, you know, that's not just a journalistic invention. Um, there was lot. You know, it wasn't a happy ship. He was a really cool guy. He, if you ever see the pictures, and he's, there's a picture of him in the book. He looks like a jazz musician. Um, and I had the chance to talk to him, which was the most, you know, amazing thing of all uh, my career. That was in '96, and unfortunately, he passed away. And then spoke to him again the following year. He passed away in 2000. Um, he was thought when Viking landed, the chances were life would be one in 50. Um, he was convinced from the Viking results that, mm, well, you know, maybe Mars. Uh, but I'd love, you know. I'd love to, if he could come back and just sit with him and go through all this stuff. I also had this very, very strange experience, which uh, some of you listeners might appreciate. In 1993, no, 94, um, I was out for the Hubble fix, you know, when they got to fix the problem with the mirror, um, mm. and went to Washington, to the American Astronomical Society, and, well, they announced the results, so... They announced the results and everyone. It was in a corridor, and I, I, I thought it was at NASA Goddard because that's where Jerry Soffen worked. So I'm standing in a corridor, but it might not have been. And there's a doorway, and this door opens, and Jerry Soffen walks out. So I introduce myself and talk to him, and blah blah blah, because by then he was working as the university liaison for for, for NASA based at Goddard. And then five minutes later, the door opens, and there was. Uh, a retired astronomer, Nancy Roman, who she was, if you look on, you know, recently with the the mother of Hubble. She was mm -hmm. the first person who... And then five minutes after that, out of the same doorway, the astronaut John Young appeared. And to me, I always thought, you know, the first scene in the Beatles' Help movie where they all come out of the four front doors and they're all inside. <laughs> there must be a room where all these people live. And I'd like to think that somewhere up in, you know, wherever the, the spirits went to, they're all sitting around looking at all this and thinking, wow. That um, is three that's... legends right there. It's funny that we've just we've we've just spoke about Nancy Roman, of course, because they've just named the W first telescope after her. Ah, okay. I did, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean she was great because she just um you know, she was head of astronomy at NASA headquarters and in some sense sort of fought her corner against the people from JPL with their budgets. Um, and, you know, she was a very accomplished person. The, the other person is Vera Rubin, who I met, who there's a ridge on in Gale Crater where Curiosity's landed that's been named after her. Um, and her son is involved with one of the Curiosity teams. So even though I'm an old geezer looking back at, you know, from the sort of pipe and slippers stage, I, you know, I was very lucky to meet a lot of great people over the years. And um, You've just you know. mentioned like four of like, yeah, the, the mega rock stars of that we've kind of mentioned a lot on, on the podcast. I mean... I mean, John John Young's definitely one of my favourite ever. John Young should have been the commander of the shuttle mission in 86 that would have launched Hubble then. But obviously Challenger blew up and um, he didn't. Because, uh, you know, he was the shuttle was delayed and Hubble wasn't launched until 1990. And I was there and I saw that. I mean, that was pretty nifty. My God, yeah. Whenever I see a picture of Columbia coming back on the first landing. So that was April the 14th, 1981. Um, and the reason I remember, and it was about just after 7 o'clock here, uh, at 6 o'clock that night I was in the garden and the phone rang and my mum came out and said, with a voice that made me think that, that she thought it was a practical joke, um, but it wasn't. Uh, and this guy in Washington said, "Hi, we got your letter. We've arranged it for you. Um, yep, yeah, we've you know we've got you somewhere to stay and a summer job at JPL. So you know that was it. So I sort of looked at the phone and went, "Wow." So my claim to fame is that I am the youngest Brit to have worked, certainly for JPL, uh, when I was I actually started on my seventeenth birthday in the summer of '81. So how about that? No one is ever going to beat that. There's, there's an interesting thing, because I'll, I'll mention another great space hero who you'll like. Some of your listeners will, will know. Um, that was Dick Feynman, but I'll come back to that. Um, there were no kind of space camps. There were no... There was none of that 
in the 70s and 80s, uh, or the early 80s anyway. And I just got it into my head because I really was a space nerd. I didn't get out much. And I realised after I'd done my O-levels, or GCSEs or whatever they were, the following summer, 1981, Voyager 2 would fly past Saturn. So in another draft of a really bad Adam Sandler movie, I decided to right to get a summer job because the encounter was the end of August and I thought in my youthful I'm not quite sure wisdom or just sort of crass stupidity but I decided that I wanted to 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 go to JPL to witness Voyager 2 fly past Saturn and by a series of bizarre accidents and sort of things that happened of the letters rounding on the desks this was arranged to me and this was a guy at JPL called <clears throat> Al Hibbs who just look at his name. I've tw- tweeted about him quite a lot. Um, he was well known at that time as the voice of Voyager, or and indeed the voice of Viking, because he was a scientist at JPL, and he'd you know he he could explain the stuff. So he used to appear on television. Uh, so I knew who he was, um, and that was the most extraordinary thing I've ever done and the greatest privilege I've ever had that somebody who was who oddly enough is my age now he was 54 55 when this letter from this 16 year old kid landed on his desk and what what I didn't realize by the way until much later was he dealt with all the nutters so if somebody wrote to NASA for a really weird you know it would end up on his desk but I'd written this very very sensible letter to say you know I want to you know to be to be at JPL for Voyager 2, because there's, there's two other things that people forget now. Reagan had come to power, and the, the Reaganomics, they wanted to lock back everything that wasn't shuttle-related. And Voyager, it was odds on chance that, you know, it it, it would survive Saturn, but uh, there would be no money. And this is always something that's there in space exploration. Governments do these crackers things, but somehow Voyager, um, you know, Kept, they kept funding for peanuts that then went to Uranus and to Neptune. So that's my claim to fame. Um, about ten years ago, my cousin rang me and said there was some kid on the radio who's he's sixteen and he's going to NASA. Um, I said, right, what's his name? Find out where he lives and let's stop him. No, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very good if you had somehow conspired to. So that's why I turned to crime. Yeah, crime writing. I look back and, th- and pinch myself because I feel like I was the cabin boy on a on a journey of exploration, and met all these great people. Um, I went to JPL and you know, did a bit of work, but one time a friend of Al's called Ellen Helene, who discovered most of the Earth-crossing asteroids in the early years, said to me, "Would you like to spend a night at Palomar?" That was a silly question when you're seventeen. So I, I spent a night ob- on an observing run at Palomar. So I always felt that because uh, my the plan. Um, was that I would go off and do research, but there was a fundamental flaw in that: is that I'm not nearly numerate enough. And my other sort of the the other thing that comes in from that is that I'm one of the few people who ever met Richard Feynman, who was inspired not to do science. Perhaps I should explain. Um, <laughs> Al had been uh, a student at Caltech, and Feynman was his supervisor. All the stranger for the fact that his PhD was in oceanography, it was how the wind makes waves, and Feynman was a quantum physicist. But Feynman loved mysteries. So when Al came to him and said, I'd like to look at this, Feynman said, Great, let's do it. Um, so that's how a quantum physicist uh, supervised the PhD of a student into oceanography. And Al's claim to fame, which is quite extraordinary in itself, is when he was a student, he'd read about the, the story of the engineer who'd gone to Monte Carlo to make a load of money because he could work out the, the errors in roulette, roulette wheels. So he and his roommate, a guy called Roy Walford, went to Vegas and went to Reno and worked out the mathematics of how to make money on casinos. This is in 1947. They were 24, and they made the press at the time. And yeah, they didn't make vast amounts of money because it's the the Monte Carlo method and all those sort of statistics didn't mean that you you know you make it. Mm. But they made enough money to, and they bought a boat and sailed around the Caribbean. And then he was hired by JPL for one good reason: they believed his statistics. So when Explorer One was launched, he was the sort of chief 
mathematician. He was the systems analyst on it. And Explorer One is launched at the top. It started spinning, and these the 11 rockets that fired and he had to work out the probability that they'd fired this was a time when there's no radio tracking so somebody in tampa said they tracked it and said it looks like it's coming down in i don't know the the, the north atlantic um and he said no hold on we'll get the signal it's higher than we think it is and it was something like i forget 15 or 20 miles higher than they thought that that altered the time when they got the first confirmation so there's the famous picture of Van Allen, Pickering and Von Braun holding up the, the satellite to say America's first satellite. That was after Al had phoned through. There was a guy waiting on the other side of the auditorium. You know, thumbs up. Yeah, you can announce it. We've picked it up. So by a very, very series of bizarre accidents, I write a letter that lands on his desk and he, you know, he arranges me for to have a job there. And it was, you know, quite possibly the most extraordinary experience I've ever really had. Not least because... Um, that same summer, he said, oh, my former PhD supervisor's coming over. Um, at this point, I should point out that Feynman was well-known, but he wasn't, you know, scientific rock star. Not many people, outside of the world of physics, not many people knew who he was. So this guy turns up, and, you know, this is Dick, and blah, blah, blah. And, we t- and I'd got a vague notion of who he was, but I didn't, <laughs> didn't realise... Here he was. I come home a few weeks later. There's the famous horizon that Chris Sykes made, where Feynman talks to the camera, and it's absolutely mesmerising. And I went back to California the following summer, um, and I suddenly realised actually, yeah, I'm going to be if I carry on doing this stuff, I'm fourth rate. I'm never going to be, you know, the magician rock star that these guys are. Um, but what I learned from them is you don't have to be. That took me quite a while to realise that everybody has some sort of skill that they can use. Um, and anybody listening to this, if you're, you know, doing your A-levels and the school asks you not to do chemistry like they did with me because they didn't want the, you know, the average grades to be reduced, don't worry, you'll find something else to do. Oh, yeah. No, well, I'm I'm a total believer, really, that 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 talent doesn't exist. I mean, Richard Feynman's actually quite a good example of it. He, apparently, he do, he never used to score very highly on IQ tests. And when you and and when you read about Feynman, he's he's just it's just if you're interested and curious about a subject, you get good at it. You know, you 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 if you love it, you'll be good at it. Yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, how about that? And that's it. And it, you know, and I mean, let's be honest about it. They had this extraordinary ability to be able to see through to the fundamental questions. I mean, the most obvious was Challenger. Um, he didn't really want to get involved. He always said, stayed away from Washington. He didn't want to do it. A former student of his who had then went to the Rand Corporation and ended up being the NASA administrator, William Graham, sort of pressurised him and said, you know, you need to do this. And Dr Feynman goes to Washington and in the famous way got to the heart of the problem and the famous footage with the, you know, the ice water and the the O-ring to Mm. prove the problem. Now, as he said, he'd been prompted in that direction by one of the military guys on the commission um but he he you know he could see, he could see through stuff that other people didn't because of this extraordinary ability and you know i knew at an early age i didn't have that but what i didn't realize until you know reasonably comparatively recently is that most people are not you know not everybody is a nobel prize winning rock star and you d- you don't have to be um because in those days, if you, you know, whereas everybody now is doing their own podcasts and got their YouTube channels and is doing Psycom and all this sort of stuff, nobody did that then. You know, if you publicised science, that was, you, you don't do that. You don't stand over there, away from the people doing the science. Um, mm. Which I which always struck me as being stupid anyway. Um and, you know, they have this ability to explain things. And if there's one thing that I've hopefully been able to do, it's the same thing, is to understand something, um, not to the same degree of, you know, of accuracy, but I could always look at something and think, yeah, I, can, I think I know how to explain that. And I don't think that's something that 
you can learn. I think you are you either have it. It's like being a blues singer. You've either got it or you haven't. Yeah, to 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 explain a complicated thing, but not just explain it, but make it interesting. You know, not you know to to sort of say it in such a way that you're you're not you you're not you don't feel as though you're grasping at the edges of it. You feel as though, oh yeah, no, I really get it. Even though you walk away and then you try and explain it to someone else and you go, oh no, I didn't understand it. <laughs> but well, said this is quite interesting because the um, whenever they had a lecture from Feynman, they could follow exactly his train of thought and you know from this and this so he goes away and you know looks at different problems and gets them to look at it in a different way and afterwards and afterwards they'd be sort of sitting around thinking what do we learn it was you know they said the the the, the standard joke about Feynman was a lecture from Feynman is like a Chinese meal an hour later you, you're not sure what you've learned and it was because his brain was so um unique that he could look at things while he was talking you could follow it but you couldn't you know there's no way that you could have the same thought processes on a on a problem so i think that's quite interesting the um i'll send you the picture so you can put it on on your site there's one of the saddest things was Feynman died in i always thought it was 89 but it was actually 88 and after he died a year later Gwyneth his wife who was from Halifax um he met her on a beach in Geneva, um, on Lake Geneva, uh, when he'd been consulting at CERN. And she died, so Alan Marker, who were good friends of the Feynman's, kept the dog, Tara, who was a spotty dog with one brown eye and one blue eye. And I happened to be in Pasadena in 1990, around the launch of Hubble, and one night I was in the you know the kind of TV room and put this... Um, there was a VHS of, or American equivalent, of one of the Feynman programs, and I put the program on, and it was basically Feynman just talking, and Tara, the dog, ran in with her eyes wide, because she obviously recognised the voice, and she came in looking to see where he was. Oh, no. (laughs) This is, for some reason, that always struck me, you know. So, you know, not only did he have this great effect on human beings, a dog could, you know, even a dog. So there you go. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! That is a small chunk of what turned out to be a two-hour conversation. So I shall be playing more of that fun chat in future episodes just before the book comes out. I think I now need to go and buy some of his books. Oh, big time. And uh, maybe put down a, a pre-purchase for the on Amazon for his new book. Oh, Jamie, before we go, yeah. I wanted to mention just this one last story, which on. was that, that was doing the rounds on Twitter a little bit, because it, it's kind of silly. There's an experiment in the Antarctic called the Impulsive Transient Antenna, or Anita. Yeah. And that looks like a big... Uh, I don't know. It looks like a function one rig that right. that flies underneath a balloon. So like a uh-huh. big sort of point source PA system, quite old fashioned point source PA system flying under a balloon. But it's right. not actually. It's a neutrino detector. Oh, an ultra high energy cosmic neutrino detector uh, that that NASA fly in a helium balloon at about thirty seven thousand meters. It high above the Antarctic, and it right. and it measures comic, cosmic rays. But back in 2018, a chap called P. W. Gorham et al. reported on a cosmic ray shower that, instead of coming into the Earth, was coming up from the ice. Whoa. And it was like, what the heck is going on? Like an upside down shower of cosmic rays. And there's been quite a lot of excitement about that since then. And I noticed in New Scientist and things like that, they're running the story at the moment that it's evidence for a possible um, alternate parallel universe. Oh, here we go. That's running backwards where antimatter is the main matter and time flows backwards, etc., etc. And that this cosmic ray, up, upside down cosmic shower, is in fact evidence for this um, parallel universe. My Lord. Now, yeah. I think that extraordinary results, of course, need extraordinary evidence. You sound sceptical, Matt. It's weird. Well, 
you've kind of well here's your choice right here's your choice it's either something slightly wrong with with the experiment itself i.e there's some technical issue a bit like that time where neutrinos were going faster than the speed of light and then it turned out that it was a cable hadn't quite been plugged in correctly that's right i think this is going to be something like that especially considering just how stubborn the standard model is my word so I don't know. I'm I'm yet to be convinced that there is a parallel universe that we can see because there's an upside down cosmic shower. But it's fun nevertheless. It's fun, but so is Occam's razor. So yeah. let's see where we are. Stick off Occam's razor in your beard. Just saying. Just saying. Jamie. Yeah. What are you doing for the rest of the week? Uh what am I doing? Lots of work. Lots of Zoom meetings. I'm getting into riding riding a bike but as you know matt i've just ordered my new guitar so i'm oh, hoping that is glory if that arrives before the weekend uh, i'll be shredding all weekend you know excellent shred and, uh, away we'll see what we can uh, see what we can create well we, we promised to do a bowie cover haven't we we we'll have, have to do a yeah. space related bowie cover and stick it at the I'll end tell you of what, the we, we should also work on a new um couple of new jingles maybe for the show oh yeah big time See if we can up our production value. Up our production value. Matt, if somebody's enjoyed this show and they're quite new, maybe they've been recommended the potty, Mm -hmm. um, where can they go to get more information and and possibly join an elite club of patrons? Um, I should suggest that the the, the main place to go is www.interplanetary.org.uk. This is where you'll find everything. Excellent advice. And what are you up to this weekend, Matthew? I shall be taking it easy after billions of hours of Zoom again. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I'm, 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 as you know, I'm in the middle of a Queen Covers project. You but are. I think I have been challenged by the patrons to, uh, to, do, a red dwar- to do that Red Dwarf uh, cover that you, yeah. that you challenged me to. So I might do yeah, that this weekend. Yeah, keep promising it. I might do that, but I've got to. I've also got to do "Death on Two Legs" by Queen, which isn't oh, going to be easy. That is that is one of my faves. "Death on so, Two Legs." Yeah, I might do it in a kind of. Um, Never you know, had a heart of your own. New metal voice. You oh, suck God. my blood like a leech. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of oh, thing. Oh dear. Yeah, that's only because Arthur's trying to persuade me to do that because he's a big Trivium fan. Of course he is. Yeah, big, big time. Big time, big time. Shall we let them go? Yeah. Have a good weekend, everybody. Bye bye, Spodcats. It's been lovely to to, to talk to you. Ta ta. Ta ta.